Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome, everyone. Welcome on the Ransom by Humanity podcast. Today, I have a really special guest. I have Professor Philip Zimbardo on the podcast. Professor Zimbardo is a professor emeritus in psychology at Stanford University and creator of the Stanford Prison Experiment. He has spent over 50 years teaching psychology. He served as president of the American Psychological Association. He has written more than 60 books and over 600 publications. Among his books are Psychology and Life, Shyness, The Lucifer Effect, The Time Paradox, The Time Cure, and most recently, Man Interrupted. His current research looks at the psychology of heroism, asking what forces push some people to become perpetrators of evil, while others act heroically on behalf of people in need. Thanks so much to be a guest on the podcast. And I got to say, I'm a bit jealous of your last name, Zimbardo, because it sounds a bit like an Italian illusionist. Oh, Italian illusionist, yes. Yeah, yeah. My family is Sicilian. I'm 100% Sicilian American. My grandparents emigrated to America, you know, at the turn of the century. They were uneducated and very poor, as most Italians and many, many immigrants from Ireland and, and uh, certainly Southern Italians but were always poorer than Northern Italians. Anyway, but I, I, I enjoy my family. I enjoy my country. I actually go back to Sicily every year for the past 16 years because I started a foundation to give uh, scholarships to high school students so they have enough money to go to college. And the idea I, I proposed is that every, every uh, student, certainly in, in poor places, should have the, if they have the ability, should have the right to get a college degree. And since I started, more than 300 students have actually graduated college. I'm very proud of that program. Yes. We're now in 1960 and 1971, Stanford Prison Experiment. Now 2021, 50 years after the experiment. As a Thanks. young guy, a young, a young dandy young guy like you, what were your hypotheses when you started the Stanford Prison Experiment? Yeah, the main thing about... Oh, sorry. I should, I, I'm just following it up, Philip. Philip, you're, you're Philip with an F. I'm Philip with a P. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So back back in um, August 14th, 1971, when we started the study, and August 14, 2021, as you said, will be the 50th anniversary. I should mention there are two documentary film companies, both preparing a documentary film on my study and also linking it to current events like. Uh, the pl police brutality in America and in many other places around the world. So when I started the study, it was very simple. It's to what extent is human behavior influenced by personality versus by situations and roles we play? So the argument is, when I did the study, most people believe that if you understood someone's personality, you could predict their behavior. And I was arguing that that's only the beginning, that when we live in different situations, at a work situation, a home situation, situations on a different kind of team, a football team, et cetera. And when we're in those situations where we usually have a role, we usually play a job, 
that's those situations are more powerful than our personality. And I wanted to show that if you put good people, bright, intelligent college students who we pre-tested to show they were normal and healthy psychologically and physically, that you put them in a simulated prison and you give them an art arbitrary role, half would be prisoners, half would be guards. In a short time, the role dominates the personality. That's it doesn't matter where you were on any personality scale, that if you are a guard, you will become domineering and controlling. If you're a prisoner, you will initially rebel, but then ultimately you'll uh, give in and, and be uh, uh, allow yourself to be abused. It was in uh, 1971 where you also had like, the Vietnam years. In how much did you also have the idea of police authoritarian brutality and they kind of like played the role of that image of the guard or the policeman or the brutality that was kind of going back in the 70s and during the Vietnam War? Yeah. So in the Vietnam War, it's really good, good uh, research, Philippe, is that many students and professors, including me, were against the war. It was immoral. It was illegal. It never, we never should have done it, and we should have stopped it earlier. But the war went on for many, many years. And so many students protested, and many students protested in a violent way, like destroying uh, buildings. And in many cases, the university administration called the police on the campus to quell the riots. And so there were a lot of physical confrontation between police and students and students and faculty, including me. And so when we did our study, college students did not respect the police. The police were the enemy. And so when we did the study, no one wanted to be a prison guard because prison guards are an extension of the police. But it didn't matter what they wanted. They were simply arbitrarily decide one is a guard, one is a prisoner. And so when we began the study, which I should say, nobody wanted to be a guard. So it's not like, you know, some, some people were sadistic to say, I'll be a guard, I'll abuse prison. Every single one that we interviewed, you know, we, we interviewed 70 people. We said, if you're chosen to study, do you want to be a prisoner guard? Zero said prison, uh, prisoner, prison guard. You honed in on three characteristics, and I'm curious if you still hone in on those three characteristics of uh, anonymity, the depersonalization, and the, the power or the growing of power. What are the most important characteristics to have people do evil things in situations? Like which, which things will make it more likely to happen? Well, all of, those, all of those three, that is, when you're anonymous, when you're in the dark, when you're in a, a uniform, military uniform, that is that you all look the same, you lose your individuality. So the reason we do or don't do certain things which are taboo is that we A, we don't want to get caught. Uh, we don't want to be singled out to people say, oh, Phil Zimbardo did this bad thing. But when we all look the same as in uniform or in carnival where we wear a mask, mm -hmm. then when we are anonymous, uh, we give up our identity. We become de-individuated. We give up our individuality. And then we do what the group does. We give in to the group norm, the group mentality. Now, we saw this in America on January 6th when thousands of people uh, attacked the American Capitol, shouting horrible things, kill the vice president, kill the Congress people, all because President Trump gave them permission to do it so that when you're anonymous, when you're in a big crowd, everybody looks the same, everybody, 
that you get caught up in the energy of the crowd. And now we, we get this at baseball games, at all, all sports events, soccer. But indeed, we have seen, certainly in European soccer, that there are points at which the fans start fighting against each other because the fans come from different towns. And in many cases, there is either envy or, or disdain of one town against the other. But those are things that those people would never do if they were alone. If you, if one person was in that town or they were in your town, you wouldn't do it. But now that your your mentality is, you know, it's really a mob mentality. You know, it's we against them, them against us. What What do you think of other maybe things that you could also take into perspective? I don't know if you read the book Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. Oh, oh, of course, where he also talks about peer pressure, or he had talks of uh, Theodore Adorno about the authoritarian yeah. personality. What yeah. is your view towards these things or the, the role of like ideology also that they play a role within uh, Nazi Germany? Are they complementary to what you say or are there certain things that you say like they, they don't play such a big role in, in no, situations? No, they're, no, they're complementary, of course, that an ideology is a belief system that once you say, I believe in this, now, then, then when there is a powerful leader, either a political leader, or if you're in a, if you're in a military, the platoon leader or the captain, the sergeant, and they give an order, your job is to follow orders. Under those circumstances, you give up your individual decision making. It doesn't matter what you want, that you now become again a conformist, somebody who goes along with the group. And so ordinary men in, you know, throughout it was throughout Germany, you know, went around killing Jews in different villages. And at the beginning, Browning says, at first, no one wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. In the first village they went. But then what happened is some did it. And then the people who did it felt guilty against the people who didn't, the other soldiers. And so they began to put pressure on them. We are a group. You, you must do what the, what the leader says. You must do what we do. And he shows almost a map. Each town they went into more and more of the soldiers got involved until at the end, 100% of the German soldiers were killing Jews. Now, these were not soldiers. These were actually older men. That makes it even mm -hmm. more interesting that they were, they were recruited because all of the younger men were, were actually fighting in the war. So these are older men who should have been more wise, who should have been smarter. But here's a case where the role and the anonymity dominate and peer pressure that you mentioned earlier takes takes control and that's when good people do bad things and become evil what do you think of the statement not nothing bonds people more than committing a crime together it's binding i mean some crimes are exciting uh, the, the event uh, to rob a bank to um, you know the first time you kill somebody you know the we, we all live with the rule, thou shalt not kill. But then somebody says, it's okay to suspend that rule against these people because they are inferior. They are Jews. They are blacks. They are Chinese. Yeah, this what fascinates me that you have this inout group behavior, but it seems like the best ways to unite people is to have a common enemy. So we're going to talk about what makes people good, but it seems that evil things or polarizing or being against something can unite people the most and often in a, in a negative way or 
only viewed through a negative lens. You're right. It's always in a negative way. And, and it usually is. See, I mean, heroism is really much more an individual characteristic. I'm trying to make it international. I'm trying to, my, my program, the Heroic Imagination Project says, we are all heroes until proven otherwise. So that the program is, how do we bring out the best in all of us? And this is what our parents have to do with their children, teachers with their students, religious leaders with their followers. So it's very easy to unite people against someone else by having a fictional cause that they, they deserve it. Um, because taking personal responsibility or making your own values and choices is very confronting or difficult, that they rather just give the authority to someone who does it for them? Or what's the mechanism yeah, behind that, this? That's one, no, that's one mechanism. You give, up, you give up personal responsibility for your action because, again, it's, you're part of a team. You're part of a group. You have new norms of, of what is good and what is bad, what's evil, what's acceptable. And then, you know, as you said with Browning, it, it's a wonderful case where those, the norms change from day to day to day. So it's, it's not, and some good Nazis at first resisted, but then over time, they are like in a bubble. That is, there's nobody, no one is supporting their resistance. And there's other people who are trying to break down their resistance to say, do what we are doing. Jews are inferior. You must kill. You must kill. Yeah. And I also had, this is the most terrifying book that I've ever read in my life, which is called The Rape of Nanking. Oh, yeah. Which is, which is about the Japanese uh, in Nanking. It's just atrocious. Like the level, the level of atrocities being committed there in a, in a record, you know, short amount of time is just unimaginable how people can commit such atrocities. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unimaginable. But now, Having done it, it becomes imaginable. That's why I mentioned the word against Chinese before, not against. So it was the rape of Nanking. It's really a description of the worst of human nature. It's as bad as anything the Nazis did against against mm -hmm. Jews. And this is, you know, rape, castration, beheading people, doing it in front, beheading a father in front of his children. So they purposely arrange situations to be as horrifying as possible. So it's not like in a war, you kill people. This was planned that what are we going to do to dehumanize these people? They're not. And so it, for the Japanese, the Chinese were not only their enemies, but they were inferior. They were mm -hmm. like animals and they, they have to be. No, but it's not more than exterminated. They have to be used for our sadistic pleasure. Yeah, that's sometimes what the most evil thing does. Like, no, no, we're not going to kill them. Then they don't suffer enough. So they better right. live. Yeah we, yeah, we make them suffer. Instead of killing somebody, you cut off their fingers. Then you cut off their hand. Then you cut off their arm. So you slowly, blood is, but they're not dead yet. So, so you want them to suffer. I mean, the point of this kind of, evil abusiveness that you want to promote as much suffering. If you, if you shoot somebody, it's over. You know, you've killed them. Now, mm -hmm. if you shoot them in front of their family, then you can take pleasure in their family's sorrow. But you could also make somebody's death slow and painful, etc. When, when you look back, I know there were like ethical questions after the Stanford prison experiment. When you look back now at what you did, would you do it 
in a different way? Would you not do it at all? Do you think it gave valuable insight that could you could use now for the heroic imagination project? How do you look back at it, and what would you have maybe changed in an ethical way if you would yeah. do something? Yeah, it's. I mean, I would do it again. I would. I would make a f- some changes. That is, I'm proud of what the experiment has demonstrated. The fact that it has been used for 50 years, not only in psychology classes, in the police, in, in the army, they use this example of how easy it is to overstep the boundaries of your assignment, the boundaries of your position. The big mistake I made was that I was both the principal investigative researcher and also the superintendent of the Stanford mm-hmm. experiment that those are incompatible roles. The reason I did it, we didn't have money to hire somebody else to play play the role. The study was only me, two graduate students, and one undergraduate. So we had four people. All of us had done research before, but all research in psychology is one hour. This is 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. 24. So that means at any one moment, somebody is sleeping, Somebody is getting food uh, for the uh, for the staff and the prisoners. So when the prisoners are get, getting hurt or breaking down, I was the one who had to bring them to student health. So we were stretched too thin, and then somebody is always making the videos. So we didn't have enough people for this kind of research. But because we had never done it, we we didn't imagine fully what what was needed. And then also, you know, I should have just played being the principal investigator and. In, in that role, I would have ended the study earlier. When I took the role of superintendent of the prison, only because there was nobody else available at that time to do it, then my focus is on maintaining the integrity of my prison. Mm. And any superintendent cares more about staff than, who are permanent than prisoners who come and go or even students who come and go. So, so that's the biggest thing I would change. We live in interesting times right now. Even in Europe, we have like a, a lockdown. A lockdown is actually like a prison term. And I would love to get your opinion about this. I love to make that podcast a bit thought-provoking. I got something from a TED Talk where you say the seven social processes that grease the slippery slope of evil. Mindlessly right. taking the first small step, dehumanization of others, deindividualization of self, diffusion of personal responsibility, blind obedience to authority, uncritical conformity to group norms, and passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. What do you make of the masks which kind of like dehumanize people and blindly following authority by people fact-checking and saying you can only say this and you, can, you can't say this, and then also have a kind of you against them culture, no matter what you think about what's going on. I found it fascinating of also the kind of dehumanization, the power by some people being used, the polarization here. How do you look from the Stanford prison experiment to, this is not an experiment, but the state of the world, the prison state of the world right now? Well, yeah. So the world is is captured in a pandemic. It's almost as everybody in the world is a prisoner and the prison warden is microbes it's it's biological it's not a person and people are dying and continue to die and will continue to die until everybody in the world is vaccinated but that's not going to happen for a year or more and then what happens is some people say the only way to minimize the deaths 
is by doing certain activities, wearing masks, social distancing, washing your hands and so forth, and also quarantining yourself, shutting down businesses. So some people say, I don't want to conform to that. Mm-hmm. I want my independence. But here's, here's an interesting case. Your independence could kill me. If you say, I don't want to wear a mask, you know, and then I'm in the street and you're coughing, then your coughing could affect me, even if I have a regular mask. If you're a, a church, a big problem has been many churches insist on having Sunday masses with people who come and whether or not they're masked, when they singing or chanting, it spreads the germs. So it's really an interesting phenomena we're seeing now of group mentality and people now want to say, I, I, I demand my individuality. I demand my right to do whatever I want. But here's now where your right conflicts with my life. So that's where you need a law and order to say, now in many cases, like in America, our new president says, everyone must wear a mask in all public occasions. And if you don't, there will be a consequence. You pay a fine. If you continue to do it, you could go to jail. Even now in American football that you see on television. So so the other problem is television helps create norms. You see people doing certain things. So there were many football teams of players who did not wear a mask. And now what happened is they got a very big fine, 20000 I think even $500,000 because the football league wanted to send a message that this is something that we all must do, that if you're even a famous sports player, you don't have the right to resist the norm that everybody else has to follow. Isn't the danger of, and you're focusing on the good things, how you can use it for the good, but I'm curious about all these things about the bystander effect, pre-pressure, group, conformity, all those things you take a look at. It could be used by consumerism, by the media, by ideologies to steer perception a certain way. So in a way, it's also good knowledge, but given to big institutions, people who want power, money, influence, they could also play on these social mechanisms because we're social animals to manipulate people to go a certain way. Have you ever thought about the dangers also from this knowledge and social psychology? Because I don't know if you ever got information about it, but you can find it like online that uh, in the 60s and 70s, they had like MK Ultra, where they were looking like how to brainwash people and did like mind control. So did you have any idea of it, what was going on there then? Because they were like investigating yeah. a lot about torture, mind control, and these things. No, I, I was very much involved in it. Yes. I mean, I wrote, I wrote articles against MK Ultra. I wrote articles describing the techniques they use. I was expert witness, and I wrote articles on Jim Jones in Jonestown, where he was a cult leader, and he, he uh, at the end, encouraged 912 American citizens to commit suicide. No, so, so I'm very much aware of that. It fits into my mentality. So at that point, I was focused on the evil, how easy it is for not only people, but c- corporations, companies to use these ideas, uh, use these ideas to get you to buy their product. And so is that wrong to use psychological knowledge to encourage people to buy your toilet paper rather than somebody else? That's what Edward Bernays did, right? The father of propaganda, right, in America? Well, that's exactly it. So that you have to use 
you know, people, we are, we are all psychologists. I mean, we all have a mind, we have a brain, we behave. That's what psychology studies. And what psychology does is try to say, here are the conditions under which people are likely to do A rather than B. Well, they, that can be exploited by somebody who says, okay, I want them to do A because if they do, I will profit from it. So people who are in business, you're in business for one thing to make a profit. Mm-hmm. And you would use any techniques that increase the likelihood you're going to make a profit. And sometimes that the, the technique is to make people angry against, against somebody else's company or uh, to join up to, to be part of a chain of people who, who believe in a certain kind of coffee, a certain kind of whatever. How, how, how do you balance between having the personal responsibility to make a different stand, be a hero, go against the group norm? Like a lot of people say, like, if I would be in Nazi Germany, I would not be a Nazi, which is very unlikely. And on the other end, like your stance now, it's saying like, hey, wear a mask. You know, personally, you can have a different opinion, but just follow the group norms. How do you navigate between those two and then, you know, decide between right or wrong or what the right thing is to do? Well, it's very hard. I mean, it's, it is what it takes to be a thinking citizen in any country. Now, again, many people after the, after the war said, if, if I, as you said, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would not follow the Fuhrers. Well, there were some people who did that, and many of them were killed. The only way you would do that is to get out of Germany, as some people did. But there were, in fact, there, there are stories of very few young people who created what we call an underground. So in any country where, where there's leaders who are presenting a point of view which you think is wrong or evil, mm-hmm. then the way you oppose them is not publicly because they have force, they have might. You have to go underground and find ways to subvert, subvert them, to take down their communication system or to, to connect with other, to create a, a group with other people who believe the same way you do. But you cannot confront national power as an individual, also as a small group. Is civil disobedience, like Henri David Thoreau says, then the best answer to take a stand? Or what's the best way to stand against evil or tyranny? When evil is powerful, the individual gets dominated. You get killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you get killed. If you, say, if you say, I don't believe this, good. Then, then you get killed. So anybody who did not endorse the Nazi point of view, or later on in, in other countries, similar things happen, the system destroys you. That's what I'm saying. So you have to be civil disobedient, and you could be disobedient through writing, disobedient through sending communications, disobedience through the through the media, so that you, you have to stand up for your rights, but you have to stay alive in order to continue to be a challenge to unjust authority. You know what's interesting and very few people ask you this question or know about this, but the first thing that you did after the Stanford prison experiment was actually investigate China's. Yeah. What was the link between a prison experiment and then jumping to the topic of China's? Well, it's a good question, Philip. When I spoke to my students after I did the study at Stanford University, when I was teaching about the study, at the end of showing some videos about the study, I said, please raise your hand if you plan to be a prison guard as a job after you graduate? Nobody out of 500 students. How many of you intend to be a prisoner? Nobody. So I said, 
I just did a study that nobody nobody can relate to. I said, however, think about a prison that you create on your own. Is that some people in this group create their own psychological prison, which means they say, I can't, once I am in this place, I can't say what I feel. I can't act out what I feel. I can't disobey, disagree. And we call these people shy, shy people. The interesting thing about shyness is it's a self-imposed psychological prison. You put yourself in that prison cell and you give up what? Freedom of speech, mm-hmm. freedom of association, and even freedom of movement. And you become the prisoner, but also the guard who enforces it. So the guard in you says, no, no, don't ask the boss who raise you. They'll turn you down. Don't answer the question the teacher asks, even though you know the answer, because maybe you'll get it wrong and people will laugh at you. So, so that metaphor that I gave, many students came up afterwards and said, gee, we're very shy. Could you tell us more about it? And I told them, okay, go to the library, bring me some references. And they said, there is no research in all of psychology in 1972 on shyness. I said, bang. So I started a shyness project. We did a lot of research, uh, cross-cultural research. We set up a shyness clinic to show how easy it is to cure shyness by following certain psychological principles. And our shyness clinic is still in action at Palo Alto University in Palo Alto, California. And we get 100% cure because we understand the psychological dynamics of why someone becomes shy. How do you define the difference between being introverted and being shy? Because some people are a bit more introverted or by themselves. How do you distinguish between the two? Because often it's yeah. like mixed up, mixed up. No, yeah, there's a big difference. Introverts are simply people who prefer to spend their life not in groups alone. That is, all creative artists are introverts. That you you rather go to a party or write write poetry. You rather be with be with your family or do painting. So introversion is a choice, as is extroversion. So those are probably the two personality traits that are most powerful. But introverts don't feel bad if they go to a party. They prefer not to. Shy people would like to go to the party, but they can't. So shyness is a self-imposed negativity that you know it's wrong to be shy. You know it's it's minimizing your enjoyment of life, but you still cannot do it. Again, in class, I've had a lot of students who knew the answer to my question and couldn't raise their hand. In fact, sometimes I would do an exercise in class to say, everybody close your eyes. And I ask a question, who thinks that Da 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 da. Please raise your hand. And then I could look, and I, I would take a picture, and that you know maybe half the class raised their hand. And then I said, then I said, they say, okay, open your eyes. How many? Then I asked another question, and many people don't raise their hand. And then I showed them the picture to say, you know, when you when you don't think anybody can identify you, you give the right answer. And if you're a student, getting, giving the right answer means you're going to get a good grade. You got to get good grades to graduate. But if you're shy, even if you know the right answer, you don't raise your hand because it might be wrong or people might laugh at you. I like the people a bit who give interesting answers, but I like the people more who ask interesting questions. I think right. that's the even more interesting thing. Some interesting question you also raise that is not often talked about. It's a huge taboo. I also know the research about it is the crisis of men right now. 
They lead in dropping out, in homelessness, in drug abuse. So many aspects in life, men are falling behind. And I know you speak out on this, but it seems to be a taboo to talk about all the issues that men are facing. I know women are facing issues, but it's almost like forbidden to talk about it. So maybe you could share a bit more about your views and have you noticed some pushback of just raising this question of the problems that men have? No, there has not been pushback. I had expected it. The big problem, okay, what is the problem? I wrote a book called Man Disconnected, and it's understanding why young men, and it's it's boys and young men, are struggling. And as you mentioned, we start with what is bad about young men in their lives compared to young women? Mm -hmm. They are failing in school. Many of them are not graduating high school. Many of them are not going to college. Many of them are not getting a good job or any job at all. Many of them are living their life in their bedroom, playing computer games and what, and masturbating to pornography. And that is their entire life. They've given up sports. They've given up friends. They even have given up connecting with family. And what we've found in our research, and I did this work with a wonderful colleague of mine who's not a psychologist, Nikita Duncan. She was able, she was younger than me. So she was able to interview a lot of these men and women. And what we find is in a huge percentage of cases, these young boys have no father. Either their father never married their mother or the father, they got divorced and the mother got custody. So it varies by country, but in most countries, it's 40, 50, or 60% of all young men grow up without a father. This is one of the biggest taboos also, by the way, one of the biggest predictors of juvenile incarceration in America is being grown up without a father. Oh, yeah. No, it has all negative effects. Why? Mothers give love unconditionally. Mothers, so if you you come home and you, you got a bad grade on your report card, or you got in trouble with the police, mothers say, try harder next time, but I love you anyway. Fathers give love conditionally. That means they say, it's not good enough. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassment to the family. Uh, we're going to cut off your allowance. We're going to take away your computer. You got to try harder. So, and so fathers say, if you want me to love you, you have to stand up tall. Now, so they lose that. So, so it means that they have mother's love always. But that's not enough. Mother's love is a foundation, but you can't build on it. And, and you also that- talked about men wanting to be with men or like men groups or, or masculine rituals that that's not there. And that that's also important for the male bonding and male initiation into masculinity. Yeah. Well, we don't have, we don't have male groups anymore. I mean, so essentially it's young men get addicted to video games because video games are addictive. They're designed to be addictive. And that each year they come out with better and better games, more and more exciting games. And the reason to play the game is to get a high score that that's your reward. And when you get a high score, you go to the next level and there's never, there's never an end. So it's, you're trapped. As you mentioned earlier, you're trapped by the media into wanting to do more and more and more. And most video games you play alone. There's some new ones which are social that you have a partner, but most young men prefer to play alone. And then what we have found out, when I say addicted, it means playing these games 10 hours Mm -hmm. every night. And then pretty soon, so if you're doing that, you're not doing your homework. So you're getting bad grades 
and then you, you getting you quit school, you get you thrown out of school, and then the, what we find out for them is when they get tired of playing the game, they can simply sit back, press a button, turn on Pornhub, and watch men conquest in the conquest of women. So it, it's really it, is that because in a way, like there's a dichotomy between men and women or masculine and feminine that women in general mostly won't love and men in general mostly won't respect and that there's not so much things anymore that men get respect by. In the past, it was their job, you know, and their function. Women right. are now getting a lot of degrees and that they get this false sense of achievement, false sense of validation by having it virtually because they just lack the respect of society or a partner. What is no, your that, hypothesis about it? No, that's, that's a very good thing is there's very few realms in which young men can feel that they have achieved something of value. We, do, we don't have that available. It's, it's worse now in COVID. We should talk about COVID. Mm -hmm. COVID pre prevents people from uh, socializing together mm -hmm. in, in a meaningful way. COVID increases your isolation. I would bet that young men that there will be a huge increase in young men playing video games that we could we could look at sales that would be one index have the sales of video games going up uh, i know that i know there are new games now that cost three hundred dollars you know to buy the game and but what i'm saying when you most of these video games like world of warcraft your job is to kill dominate the enemy mm -hmm. In many of the traditional pornography, it's you imagining be the man dominating the women or many women. So it's a similar thing that you have a sense by playing these games, I am a dominant person. And in fact, you're nothing. You have no, you have no status in your society. You, you are a, no nothing. You're a, a failure. You dropped out of school. And you don't have grades to get into college. If you don't graduate from high school, the lowest level menial jobs are available for you so that women now are taking the place of men are going to college getting more educated even even now beginning to move into tech businesses and men are just failing so it's really very sad and i'm the only one talking about this i mean and i guess what i'm saying now is it'd be interesting somebody should do studies about try to find out through survey monkey how many young men are now playing video games, either be beginning during the pandemic or playing more hours. Yeah, it's also something that's very dear to my heart because a lot of young men, they are lost, they're unconfident, they feel ashamed, they find it difficult to relate to the other gender and they have a lot of shame, but they don't talk about it. They numb themselves more and then they flee in these games or drugs or, or porno like you talked about. That is a hidden crisis, but it's like a huge crisis. Plus also yeah. in this COVID, I think, Everybody has a little bit of a dose of depression. Staying right. inside, every day looks the same. Nothing to look forward to, no social right. contact. So this is almost like a year. So what do you think is the best way for people to spend their time or what to do, what they can do right now? Because it's never been easier to numb yourself, stay inside, be anxious and be depressed with hopelessness of no end inside. Right. I mean, what some people have been doing, certainly connecting their family by Zoom, so the other thing is invest in Zoom. <laughs> Maybe too late. They, the market has probably reached a, a peak. No, but it's 
Can because you, it also relates to, and maybe it's a it's a huge of a topic. You also have a book about the time paradox that a, a large part of how you view life is determined on how you look at the past, the present, and the future. But now most people don't have such a positive view of the future, so it must also affect like their view of humanity right now. Yeah. So being trapped in the present, which we are now, we're all trapped in the present. The idea is, is it present fatalistic? That is, nothing I do makes a difference. Well, yes, something you do can make a difference. You have a lot of free time. You can begin to do constructive things. You can learn a new skill, learn to play the piano, learn to uh, write poetry, learn, learn to paint. In fact, there are many, many free courses now available that never were available before. And now you have 24 hours a day to get get on them, uh, learn how to play cards, learn how to gamble well. So there are a lot of positive things you could do because what the pandemic has done is give us the gift of time. You have now 24 hours a day to decide what you're going to do. You don't have to go to school. You can't. You can't go to work. Uh, you can't go out and play. So now you're home and you got your computer, you got your computer screen. How can you use this time to enrich your mind, to do new things? As I said, write poetry, paint, write your memoirs, and then also connect with other people on Zoom. You investigated evil, but now you're doing the heroic imagination project. What are the determinants for someone to become a, a hero a hero in their own living room right now or a hero in society? Like, How can they build themselves up what are the traits of a hero and what's the attitude of heroes? And the last chapter of The Looser Effect, which I would encourage your viewers to read, um, it's mostly about the prison study, but also it has a chapter on rape of Dan King, a chapter on Abu Ghraib prison, where American prison guards did what my students did, only they did it every night for three months and much worse. And But the last chapter, so 15 chapters are about evil. The last chapter is the transition from showing that ordinary people, that good people can be seduced to do evil. And then I say, let's think about ordinary people becoming heroes. Well, the first thing you have to say is we have to change the conception of heroes. We all have heroes in every nation. Typically, these were military generals who won wars. You're not a hero if you lost a war. But these are also famous people, people who, who uh, Madame Curie, people who, you know, opposed uh, apartheid like Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. So we have, we have, the world has these collective heroes, but these are people who spent their whole life doing heroic things. I'm saying, no, no, what we want is you to do one good thing once. One good thing means what service can you do? to make somebody else's life better. So so we begin with the bystander effect. Somebody, it, when you could the, go the out- The positive bystander effect. The yeah. positive, so the positive bystander is to be an upstander. Mm. Be the first one to help somebody in need. So we, we, we always think of somebody who's been in an accident. So your job is to help them, to call the police, to call an ambulance. But now, if you're online regularly with- Because the, because the bystander effect is a diffusion of responsibility that sometimes something negative happens and everybody's standing there and not doing anything because they think, yes, yeah, someone else will just do it. And they just diffuse their responsibility so they don't act, even though that they know like something should be done. No, actually, actually ac that's accurate, Philippe. It's that it's, I mean, what happens is the more people that gather around some negative mm -hmm. event, somebody is hurt, 
the more each one thinks somebody should do something. And because there are a lot of people, you assume somebody will mm-hmm. rather, than, rather than to say somebody will, and I will take, I will take the lead. And so this is what we train. So in my heroic imagination project, I have developed lessons, lessons that are exciting, three hour long that I used to, similar to what I would do at Stanford with videos, with a Q&A, with uh, critical thinking skills. So these lessons I license to schools and also to businesses to teach you how to be, what do I call it, every a hero or a hero in training. You're a hero in training until there's an event at which you can come to the aid of somebody else. So it means you come to the aid of someone in need and you take a risk. It also means, for example, if you're working in a business and you see there's corruption or there's a Mm -hmm. bullying, management is bullying some workers, your job is to confront that, to report it. So So the idea of hero there is anyone can become a hero, standing up for what is right, challenging what's wrong, and also always, always being sociocentric, always say, what can I do to make life better for you? So it means whenever I go into, a, a, when I could go out, whenever I go into a conference, even where I'm giving a lecture and people gather afterwards, you know, I would always see somebody sitting alone and I'd go over and I introduce myself. Hello, I'm Phil Zimbardo. What is your name? You and stop I the sh- shyness. And I shake their hand. Then I start a conversation. And then the important thing is to learn how to give a compliment. And so, so do you say, what did you think about my talk? And they say some, I say, well, that's interesting. Nobody ever presented it that way. You may now you, you inspire me to think differently about this. So I give, so heroes also give compliments. Compliment makes you feel special. Co- some compliments are physical to say, wow, I wish I had a green hat like yours, Philippe. I <laughs> Thank you. You, you look great. You look like the jolly green giant. So, so we always give compliments about how people look, but also more importantly about what people say or do. So again, I will honestly say I've enjoyed this conversation. You've done a lot of homework. Uh, you identified key aspects of my, my thinking, my research, and presented it in a way I hope your viewers uh, will enjoy. Yeah, and you look uh, definitely not your age. You look in your 70s. So that's, that's my compliment your way. March 23rd. 2021, I will be 88 years old. 888. I have a a stance that to know good or to do good, you also have to know evil. And partly being good is knowing that maybe you could be evil in a situation and choose otherwise. What is your stance towards that, that to know good is also knowing that you could do evil and choose otherwise? Yeah, I mean, again, if you think back, when Christians say the, the Lord's Prayer, there's a significant line which says you're praying to God and you first say, deliver us from evil, lead us not into temptation. Mm-hmm. So if you think about what that means, it means the world is filled with temptations, temptations to cheat, temptations to rob, temptations to dominate somebody who's smaller or weaker. And it's, it's always all around. You go into a store, uh, you go into a candy store and the manager's not there. The temptation is you reach in and you take some jelly beans or you take something. So life is filled with those temptations. Or uh, you want a job, you're competing with somebody else. And the temptation is to say something bad about them to the boss. And so to be a hero is to resist the temptation to do evil. And 
embolden the temptation to always do good, to say, that's what a hero does, to say, I always think about, I could go that way and make a lot of money or get fame, but I would do it by hurting others. Instead, I will go this way because this is the right path. That's why I love learning about history. And I don't say like, oh, it was the Nazis or it was the Nazi ideology. Because when I take a look at Alexander Solzhenitsyn or what Stalin did or Paul Pot did or what some people did in Rwanda or other cases, they can reside in different ideologies to just say like it was the Nazis or it was the ideology is kind of not having that holistic perspective to see that it can happen with a lot of different ideologies, people and groups. No, exactly right. I mean, the problem with Hitler is that he had such a big propaganda campaign that they had movies and, you know, and then of course he had the extreme concentration camps everywhere. But Hitler mentality has been recreated many, many times over in many different countries. It simply has not been promoted as well as propaganda as well. The evil, the temptation to do evil, the temptation to dominate is always there. It's always there in some people to become the dominant leader. So again, that's, that's where, as you said earlier, civilian challenge, civilian unrest, civilian confrontation with powerful evil leaders, but you're always taking a big risk, losing your job or losing your life. What is your stance towards prisons then? in terms of like punishment and rehabilitation and also the personal responsibility people ha have for the act that they did in the moment. You did it in groups, but I'm wondering on a personal level or murder or even like a robbery with a couple of people, like what is your stance toward how we treat prisoners and crime? When I did the Stanford prison study at that time in 1971, there were 700,000 American citizens in prison. Mm -hmm. Today, there are 2.2 million mm -hmm. American citizens in prison. Prisons have become a business, a very profitable American business. Uh, in fact, they, are now, they have now become private prisons, prisons for profit. And the good news is I think our President Biden is going to try to eliminate that. So prisons punish. Uh, prisons initially were to be uh, for rehabilitation. Early on, when we first created prisons as a place to segregate those who broke the law from the rest of society, we call them penitentiaries. What does it mean to be penitent? It means to think about what you did. Redemption, uh, yeah. Redemp so you're set aside, you're given time to think about what you did. And the idea of prisons were to make you think about the, your wrong deeds, be penitent, confess that you did it, and then be ready to return to society. Instead, now prisons have become a place for punishment, for abuse. So there's almost no rehabilitation. Prison sentences have gotten longer and longer. I think the, I don't know the exact number, but probably the average number is people who go to prison are there for three to seven years, isolated from one another. And when you're in prison to survive in most prisons, you have to do evil things. Within the, within the prison. Mm -hmm. uh, and so very few prisons teach you something that teach you a skill. Now, obviously, prisoners can, could be learned tech skills, could be learned programming skills. That, that's relatively simple. You don't need a lot of equipment. Uh, you can have classes in prison of t teaching you programming. 
So prisons should be places um, where you learn how to develop a skill that will be valued and you can make money when you return to society. Very few, if any, prisons in the world are doing that. Certainly not here. I think in Norway they are, but certainly not in America. And that's, that's what we need. If people want to find out more about what you do and the Heroic Imagination Project and all the books and the great talks that you're giving, where can they find out about you? And maybe you could end also with a story about how you met your wife and what happened and how she shifted your perspective. Heroic Imagination, I don't know if it's project, heroicimaginationproject.org or heroicimagination.org. It's also thetimeparadox.org.com. And the scale that I use to measure differences in time perspective is available to be taken online. I used to have a, a Zimbardo.com website, but somehow it got, got lost, got eliminated. So I have to recreate it. But I think, I think they could go to Wikipedia. I, I, I don't know if Wikipedia is up to date, but it's pretty good. We're going we're gonna to end this wonderful session with, uh, with Philippe. But he invited me to tell the story of how I really stopped the prison experiment early. As you know, the experiment was supposed to go for two weeks. And after five days, we were all exhausted. I mean, me and my graduate student, undergraduate. And I I don't think I could have gone two weeks, psychologically and physically. And then this this young woman, uh, Christina Maslach, who had been my graduate student at Stanford, and now was a, a, a new professor at University of California, Berkeley, called me up because I, I was living in my office and, and said, hey, I haven't seen you for a week. How about I come down on Thursday night and you know, after, after the prisoners go to sleep, we can have, can have a late dinner. I said, oh, great. I need, I need a break. I mean, I'm saying for five days, I had not been out of that place. Either You've in been my a prisoner. <laughs> I've been a prisoner, literally uh, sleeping on a, on a couch in my office or down in the basement. And so she comes down uh, and she's looking at, now we didn't have a one-way screen. We had a, a, a video camera uh, and that you could, you could see the display on a video screen. And what she sees is what was called a 10 o'clock toilet run. At 10 o'clock every night, it was the last time prisoners could go to a real toilet. After that, they had to urinate or defecate in buckets in their cell. And they hated to do that because it's well, terrible. It's embarrassing. But the guards use this as the last opportunity to abuse them, to mm. uh, intimidate them. Mm-hmm. So they, they would line them up and put chains on their feet from one leg to another, like a chain gang, put bags over their heads so they didn't know where they were going, and then march them up and down uh, in elevators, up, up, up top floor and then down again, yelling at them, cursing at them. So this is what's happening. I'm right. I'm taking notes. And Christina looks at this and says, this is horrible what you're doing to those boys. And I said, what do you mean? She says, I can't even look at this. And she runs out and I run out and we're standing now in front of the psychology department building in front. And she says, I don't understand what's what you what's you become. You love students. You have a reputation. Students mm-hmm. love you. And these are not prisoners. They're students and they are suffering. And you are responsible. And I, I'm saying, wait a minute, nobody's ever seen this dynamics of you know a, a group a group process in the same way. And then she said, Stop. If this is the real you, I don't think I want to continue my personal relationship with you. 
And that was the wake up call. Because what she's saying is, you have become the victim of your own experiment. You have become the, the uh, captured in the role of superintendent, just like the, the boys playing guards. And at that moment, I said, oh my God, you're right. I said, I got to end the study sooner. So we went and had dinner and I started, after dinner, I started thinking about, you know, how we're going to end it. Because then we have to have two debriefing of the prisoners, of the guards, and bring them all together, you know, and then arranging to pay them for their time and, you know, break down the prison uh, environment. But essentially she was, she was the hero of my life. And the next year we got married and we are, we, we have this, this August, we're going to have our 48th wedding anniversary. So two more years will be 50, 50. So you see people, that's also how he started this heroic imagination project. So you can always shift the norms and uh, take personal responsibility and, help each other to become a hero. Thanks so much for the talk, Professor Zimbardo. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.